Sex Ed Speakeasy is not for children. No speakeasies are for children, especially this speakeasy. We will be using very adult language. Very, very, very adult language. This is Sex Ed Speakeasy, the podcast where we take deep dives into the history of sex and even deeper dives into our drinks. I'm Angel Russell, board-certified sex educator. And I'm Steve Russell, your box wine sommelier. <laughs> Glad that's what you went with. That makes me happy. <laughs> and this episode is about dating and the Industrial Revolution. Welcome to our podcast, Century Stories, where we tell one story a century apart. Last episode, Europe <laughs> might remember when we talked about the hanky code separated between between the 1870s and the 1970s. This is fully sober Steve, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> this week, we're going to be talking about two industrial revolutions. Mostly because we uh, each thought the other person meant something different when we said the industrial revolution. So apparently there were two of them. Yes. So Steve, tell us about that, will you? About which one? About the, there being two. Oh, well, in the late 18th century, uh, we had the first industrial revolution, which uh, largely brought automation techniques to things like textiles. And then about a hundred years later, in the late 19th century, we had the second industrial revolution, uh, which involved more things like electricity, and it was also known as the technological revolution, and uh, that led right up into the roaring, or not, didn't really hit the 20s. It went right up into World War I. Well, this sounds like an extremely dry topic, so I would like to wet my whistle a little bit. Let's head over to our favorite segment, Aperitifs with Aaron. Aaron's Aperitifs with Aaron. And you're on the phone now. I am on the phone now. And those those that were with us in the last episode know that we took a recipe from the 70s. And yet again, here we are with another recipe from the 70s. But the, uh, which 70s, though? The 1770s, ah, uh, to be exact. Hey-o. So, yes. When I, when I sent this recipe to Steve, he was like, oh, that's a boring recipe. <laughs> and I was like, dude. <laughs> We spice up drinks now so it can be all fun and fancy. Back then, they, they mixed stuff together so when you drank it, it wouldn't kill you. Or, you know, <laughs> maybe it cured lupus or something. I don't know. But cured lupus. Yes. Can you imagine? If it was just yes. that easy to cure lupus, just here, Ma, have some Madeira. <laughs> right? So, uh, but, but yeah, back then, um, drinks were, were a little less flashy, shall we say. All they right. got the job done. Well, I have... A shaker full of ice. I have. Oh, some we bought a shaker, brandy, and a swizzle stick. We bought. We did. We started since to level the last up. episode. We bought a shaker, a swizzle wow, stick, you're... and a thingy to like to to do the nutmeg. A microplane. Microplane. Okay. Oh, thank goodness. I was gonna. I was gonna berate you guys if you came at it with a shaker of ground nutmeg. No, no. We got the real deal. We have. A, we have nutmegs. Nutmeg nut, nuts. Nut, yeah, we nut, are. Nut, <laughs> It's it's important for your listeners to know that having, you know, actual nutmeg on hand is important for anything you're going to use it for. It's just you you won't believe how different it is and how much better it is until you actually do it that way. 
do it that way. Yeah. Well, I'll now never I'm buy ground nutmeg again. Ugh, now I'm going to be hooked. I don't even Calm use nutmeg down, that Al- often. Alton Brown. <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't know. I think I'm going to okay. be sold on this. I like any chance to use a fancy tool in the kitchen. So. So. Uh, to be clear, you like any chance to use Steve in the kitchen? That's what I'm saying. <laughs> okay. Steve so anyway. is so happy. <laughs> <laughs> so today we're making a sangri, or sangri, depending on if you're from Spain or, you know, the South. All right. So how do I, what do I start? What do I do first? Um, you learn about the drink. Oh, teach me all about so, the drink, Aaron. You don't even know about <laughs> right. the episode. I, I, well, what is the episode? I hey, do know Aaron. about the episode. This is, Yes. ASL. ASL? ASL, Aaron. Like sign language? No, ASL. No, because we're talking about dating, and that is just like a really common like online dating thing. Have you ever done online dating? No, I bet he hasn't. I never did. Okay. I was, I was <laughs> days away from doing it when I was introduced to my wife. So, God, you so, dodged a bullet. Um, in online dating, you'll like load up your like MSN oh, got or, it, sorry. or AOL chat room. Yeah. So so when you're online dating, you'll load up like your AOL or MSN chat room and uh, you'll just pick whatever like room you want to go in, whatever's to your interest. And you'll just type in ASL and then you're online dating. Yep. ASL. So, like, and that's just so kind of how it works. A- age, sex, and then is L language? Location. Location location got it got it because if you're all already speaking english you probably know the language okay so Sangry. Sangry. so this is this, <laughs> so yeah, this episode people... is all about the industrial revolution so okay yes hence why we picked a drink appropriate to the times yes yes 1770s a lot of people who hear sangri think sangria and uh there are even some books that will use them as synonyms but it's not true uh sangri uh, came about back in the the late 1700s. Sangria didn't come around until what, like the 1950s, 1960s. I'm sure we'll get to it at some point. Um, but they do come from the same root. So it's uh, really just a, a fortified drink, a mixture of brandy. You'll see you'll see different spirits used in it. You'll even see different fortified wines used in it. Some can even use fortified wine. It's one of those recipes that, I mean, it's so old and so many different regions have their own interpretation uh, that it can be quite broad. But we're going to go with a, one of the more classic ones. I was so going to say, why your, did you pick this one? This one specifically, because it seemed to be, it seemed to hold truest to some of the most uh, original recipes that I could find about it. Awesome. When you yeah. say that, like, it could be just a mix of, you know, a bunch of different spirits with fortified wines, but not even use fortified wines, but you just d- use different spirits. It makes me think that it's just a really easy word to say when you're wasted and you start mixing liquors. <laughs> yes, like, hey, sangry. hey, Dan, what are you making? I'm making sangry. <laughs> it's like, so it's ev- like hunt punch for the industrial revolution. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so every sangry has three things in common. They all tend to have water, sugar, and nutmeg. We got all the of other us. things. The spirits are what change. Okay, so if we're making this recipe, first thing you're going to do is mix the sugar and water together. Okay, so how much sugar to how much water? And do I just do that in like a little glass or? So, yeah, and if you're going to do about a half a teaspoon sugar, depending on how sweet you like it, with about a teaspoon of water. <laughs> so, great. You can hear him even though he's outside. This he's is what so good. That my, well, my house is 110 years old. So it doesn't matter how outside my dog is when I'm inside. You still hear everything. Okay. So we have, 
I am mixing our sugar and water with my swizzle stick in my, I'm, I've got a, a stemless wine glass that says stay fancy that I won from you in a white elephant party at Christmas. <laughs> and, and I'm glad that you have followed the directions on the glass. I, I have stayed fancy. <laughs> so are you mixing, are you mixing this with the ice right now? No, I was just stirring it together in the cup and then I can put it got in it. the ice, right? Yeah, go ahead. Yeah. Because the next thing we're going to do is add the ice the port and the brandy so here we're adding the water and the sugar to the ice instead of the ice to the water and sugar but you know it really depends on your vessel size doesn't it okay so, so now, I, I have a quick question so this drink when it's all said and done in the glass does it have ice in it no it so not. we should be doing all this in the mixer you're going to be straining this okay, okay so do this all in the mixer and then strain it okay so I put this in, okay, so that I've got, right now I have a shaker that's full of ice and has my water and sugar mixture. Yeah, so, okay, so hold on. So you're going to do two parts brandy. Okay. To what? To one part port or Madeira, depending on what you have. Do you have Madeira? Yeah, we I have Madeira. Madeira. So this is two so to two, one. No, so two of those two to, to one of those. Right. Two brandy to one Madeira. The oldest recipes show Madeira, though you see a lot that use port as well. Similar drinks, you know, the, the treatments to Madeira obviously give it a nuttier flavor. So we went out to the the liquor store and we were buying this and um, we had no idea what we were looking at because... Wait, stop. No, because I'm making two. Oh, you are. Good call. Oh, we didn't put enough water <laughs> and sugar then. Okay, well, then I'll do it again. Because um, they brought us over to the section. The brandy and the cognac are right next to each other. Some of the brandy just says the brand. Some says VS. Some says VSOP. Some says EXO. And we almost bought a cognac on accident just because we don't know what we're doing. <laughs> and uh, so so what's important? Like, like what, sure. what do all these things mean? So while we don't have time to get into the specifics of brandy, right? I'm sorry, cognac right now, which we can totally do with the VS and all that. Um, all cognac is brandy, but not all brandy is cognac. Kind of in the same way that all bourbon is whiskey, but not all whiskey is bourbon. It Got has it. to do with the region. Now, with bourbon, it also has to do with the um, actually. It also has to do with the barrels that you use and and the makeup. But long story short. Uh, cognac comes from a very specific region. They're both basically wine that has been distilled. Okay, I'm stirring instead of shaking because I already have my swizzle stick. <laughs> and again, that's just preference. So when so you say we you can't get into your... when when you say we can't get into like the cognac, like we got a VSOP brandy. Ooh. Like, and I think that means very special old person. Petroleum. Oh, so close. <laughs> Petroleum. Yes, yes, it's product, 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 very special old product. Poutine. It is, it is a very, okay, so now I've combined everything and now I put it in glasses, right? That is correct. Now you go strain it into glasses. Okay, I'm straining. We got a fancy schmancy uh, strainer. This episode is actually sponsored by OXO. <laughs> Not really. Don't say that. What are they going to do? Well, it just features OXO. What are they going to do? Give us money? Wouldn't that be great? Oxo, you want to sponsor us? Okay, and then now what do I do with my nutmegs? 
I'm sorry, I was distracted. I have OXO salad spinner, and I was trying to figure out how to fit it into this conversation. Oh, well, you just did. Winner, winner, there chicken dinner. <laughs> yes, now all you're going to do is simply garnish with nutmeg. All right. Oh, my God, that smells so good. Holy schmokes. Have you started grating the nutmeg? No, I just opened it. Oh. It's got that, like, uh, the, the Christmas spice. It smells like pumpkin spice. Don't even start with me with Christmas. It's not Christmas yet. No. Isn't it called the Christmas spice? I don't know. Or is it just like a warm spice? It's definitely a warm spice. You should get some spice when you when you raise it to your lips here because of the nutmeg. Okay, that's weirdly good. I did not expect to like this drink. Yeah. <laughs> Steve says, right? yeah, like he can taste anything. Yeah. <laughs> Steve's like, yeah. He hasn't been able to taste anything for weeks. But I will tell you, I smelled coffee for like one second yesterday. And today I could smell rosemary for about one second. Aaron, this is a beautiful drink. Thank you for this. Oh, thank you. I'm very happy to be drinking this. And this is like the perfect, not only is this a perfect drink for the episode, this is a perfect drink for fall. Yes. So, yeah. and I, I spent some time trying to look at drinks, you know, from around the Industrial Revolution. And a lot of them had you frothing egg yolks Ugh. and mixing. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, and, and and mixing a lot of other things that didn't sound all that good. And I was like, let's find something a little more cultured. Good looking out, my friend. <laughs> <laughs> well, that is wonderful. Do you have anything you'd like to say to our audience before we say before we bid you adieu? I not at this point. No, I, this has been a lot of fun, and I'm excited for the next one. Hey, uh, where would you rank the Industrial Revolution in your favorite re revolutions? Favorite revolutions. Okay. Um, <laughs> <laughs> below dance dance revolution of course and i'm trying to think of a third revolution the but French. above the, the where i was gonna go um american but. <laughs> oh above the american but below dance dance russian <laughs> anything to do with rasputin right. is high up there it's true you yeah. know maybe i should put the american revolution higher i am but still not above dance dance that's where we're leaving this that's the best revolution and on that note cheers to aaron and cheers to you. <laughs> Bye, Thanks, <friend>. bud. <laughs> Bye. Hey, babe. Yeah. Steve and Angel sitting in a tree. <laughs> <laughs> Am I supposed to finish it? K-I-S-S-I-N-G. Yeah. What's that from? We'll know what comes next. First comes love. Then comes marriage. We're not. There's no babies in the baby carriage here. So I don't, I'm already out. I'm out. But still. I'm out. What a thoroughly industrial and modern thought of you. <laughs> Your segues First comes are love, seamless. Then comes marriage. <laughs> Why don't we just throw away thousands of years of human history while we're at it? Well, that's capitalism for you. Well, I don't know what capitalism has to do with it. You'll have to explain that to me. Well, okay. Let, let's backtrack a little bit though. Let's talk about, um, let's talk about what happened. So what, what was dating pre-industrial revolution dating looked like um, calling. So calling was when um, a, a, a young lady, typically upper middle class or like uh, upper tier society woman would single woman would hold office hours basically at her house <laughs> and she would say, okay, I'm available from this time to this time. And then gentleman colors which is where the phrase gentleman, callers, gentleman caller comes from. Gentleman callers would show up at her house 
And they would bring their calling card, their little like, business card, and they would say, you know, I'm here to see you if you want to see me. And if she did want to see him, then he would come and sit in the parlor with her and they would talk. And that would be supervised um, either in the same room or in an adjacent room by like a family member. And it was all very um, – or like a governess or something. Yeah. So there, there was a, there was a, a, a family sanctioned uh, chaperone to these uh, calls. They had play dates. Yeah, they had play, play They had play dates exactly. Okay, I, I, I can I can jive with that. So and they got they spent some time getting to know each other and hung out and so that's what dating was and dating was really about aligning families for resources. So depending on what tier of society you were in, you were aligning families for um, like wealth or you were aligning families for land or you were aligning families for um, agricultural purposes or whatever. So there would be all these different reasons that you would want to like buddy up with your neighbor. And one way to like combine resources with your neighbor was to marry your kids to each other, basically. And so a lot of, in most cases, marriage was arranged by the families and it was... Um, like a suitable marriage typically resulted in some sort of increase in the assets and resources that each family had. So does it sound right? I, I kind of got the... Yeah. So when we're talking about dating in the Industrial Revolution, we're talking about the actual invention of the just the idea of dating. Yeah, because it wasn't dating wasn't a thing up until that point. So what happened with the Industrial Revolution that made dating what we think of as dating? Well, um, it was the shift from everyone being in their villages or their little towns and moving to these new centralized cities. I mean, we had cities in the past, you know, uh, ports of trade, everything like that, but they weren't the, the giant, really centralized places that we see now. Just because there wasn't any need for them to be, most of the production was still done outside of the city centers. The the cities were where the actual trade took place, but the actual production of the things being traded wasn't done in the cities. And with the Industrial Revolution, when suddenly we had uh, automated machines, uh, especially with things like textiles, uh, suddenly all these machines had to be put somewhere and they were all put together in these really big cities and they needed people to run these machines. And so all these people moved to the cities for this great opportunity to make money. And suddenly you have men and women all put together in these factories or living in these cities. They got to go someplace to eat. They're away from home. They're away from their parents for the first time in human history. So I, um, I heard this or read or whatever, this interesting statistic, and this applied to the second industrial revolution. Um, but it was, they were talking about, uh, individuals were making in a week, what entire families made in a week up to that point. And so not only did you have all of these people who were suddenly in close proximity with each other and mingling and literally mixing and mingling in ways that they just had never done before. And, you know, humans going to do what humans going to do, but also, um, they have money, disposable income. 
And that's where I made my comment about capitalism um, really having a lot to do with the invention of dating. Um, because not, not the, I mean, the human desire to connect is innate, but the mechanism and the standards and the social scripts, a lot of what we know um, today really does come from um, marketing to people who now had some leisure time and disposable income. Like they didn't have to be home taking care of their families on the farms. And so they had extra time in their day and they didn't have the constant, not everybody at least had the constant chaperones and they had some disposable income. And, you know, we're still dealing with things like, you know, pay inequality. So men making more than women. So um, we've got men being expected to pay for meals and, um, you know, there's still like social standards that we see now that started then. But it's just interesting to think that what we know of as dating came about because of the Industrial Revolution. Like it wouldn't exist without that this big shift. We call that like a history effect where one big moment in history shapes something in like this big way. And it's interesting to see. It's like um, a paradigm shift. Huge. Yeah. And so I don't know. I, I, I think I just found it completely fascinating. You know, um, when I was researching about this, you, you bring up pay inequalities and I actually found out something really interesting because I, I was looking all the way back to human history of how, <laughs> how you had your Bible out at one point. I, I, I did. <laughs> I actually have like an entire page of like Bible verses written out and everything. <laughs> um, like if you go back to the Stone Age, it was it was very violent and animalistic. You know, got clubbed over the head and dragged to the cave, and you are now woman to the caveman and everything. Starting in the Old Testament biblical times, uh, I found I, I didn't realize that you know you largely still had arranged marriages, but um, I didn't realize that the groom was often paying the brides father for the bride there was a bride price yes and you had guys like laban who had lots of daughters <laughs> and like everybody was going to laban during like genesis and joshua and everything to to get with one of his daughters it was it was absolutely wild but anyway going daughters to, are a hot commodity yeah man. they are <laughs> I, I saw this one website saying that laban ran the daughter mart the daughter mart Definitely an appropriate thought. <laughs> but, you know, in these times, uh, or in the times that I'm talking about, you know, a, a man might have a, a bunch of wives and everything. And it wasn't until the between Testament times uh, when the Roman Republic brings up the idea of monogamy. You have, you know, one husband, one wife, try to pair for life and everything like that. What was Interesting to me, though, was that was the time when we had the shift from bride prices to dowries, when uh, the, the bride's family would pay the groom's family uh, to have the, the kids marry and everything. But the brides, the, the women in these relationships usually had their own property and they had their own money. And it was hmm. super common for husbands to t like take out loans from their wives during the Roman Republic. <laughs> I had no idea. Yeah. And, and that's then, amazing. Yeah. Yeah. And, and then How you progressive. get progressive. <laughs> right. 
And then you get to Roman Empire, New Testament times, and everything just falls apart. Falls apart. And, yeah. And everything goes to shit. But what do you think it was about monogamy that shifted us from a groom pays the bride's father to the bride's father paying the groom? Like, like, what do you think? Do you think that those two things are related, or do you think they just happened at the same time? I'm trying to I'm trying to work out the the numbers and economics of like. If you have one groom with many wives, how much is that groom worth in comparison to the brides versus suddenly you have less grooms per bride? Well, I can. But then it would be backwards. I was going to say, yeah. I think, oh, I think about it in like modern terminology. Again, here's capitalism again. If you have a daughter, let's, let's say that we're going by like social standards in the Southern U.S. Okay. So you have a daughter. So as she's growing up, she'll probably get asked out on dates. The social expect again, this is super heteronormative, but the social expectation is that like the boy will pay for the dates, but it's going to cost you, you know, she's going to be having all the clothes and the makeup and getting her hair and nails done and all of like the beauty standards are on her, so there's that cost. Then you get to like big events like like homecoming and prom. Her, her dress costing so much more than like his tux. Um, so the, the cost of like the, the, the upkeep cost of a daughter. The makeup tax. Is, yeah, the, the pink tax. Yeah, it's, it's higher. And then you get to things like the wedding and we don't do a dowry anymore, but the, but the social expectation, again, if you're going by like Martha Stewart rules or whatever, is that the bride's family traditionally pays for the bulk of the wedding. Right. And I know that's not like how people like actually, like people don't always do this anymore, but again, that's sort of the social script around this. And so I think, is it more expensive to raise a cis straight girl or is it more expensive to raise a cis straight boy just from those standards alone? I mean, I, I gotta believe that, that a girl costs more than a boy. Yeah, if, if you're if you're sticking to those like if that's the path that you're on and you're sticking to those like standards, yeah, and you don't make them get jobs to pay for the shit. <laughs> like, well, I mean, because also you have like football costs some money, right? A, a predominantly boy sport. Ballet costs so much more. Oh yeah. Well, now, I, I mean, you most you, yeah predominantly most of the things that predominantly attract girls to them yeah like no I'm, I'm just thinking about all the different things that that cost more the only thing i can think of that costs more for boys might be f food like oh yeah like feeding like, like boys the caloric like i don't know levels man. having two teenagers in the house that are different genders i'm gonna say that <laughs> That's a myth. <laughs> well, neither of them eat a lot. So, <laughs> but when they when they're hungry, yeah, they can both put it down. You know what I mean? They pack it away. Yeah, yeah. So, um, I don't know. I I think we're on a tangent here. I I'm I'm just wondering. There's some sort of correlation, and it may not be related, and it may not be causal, but there's some sort of correlation between monogamy and the dowry. And I just wonder. I guess we didn't really look into that, so maybe someone who knows. Well, I bet that, well, no. Like, I was going to say, like, we also had the big shift of 
Um, and it maybe was never a shift. Maybe it was, it's very, very historical and went back a long time, but that the men made the money and the women raised the kids. And so it's like an investment in the groom. Well, okay. But it's, I mean, if you get into like evolutionary psychology, that's, that's a lot more that stands the test of time a little bit more. It makes more sense from an evolutionary psychology standpoint. Nope, not going down that road. We're going to get letters. Um, we've seen these social <laughs> we've seen these social scripts play out and evolutionary psychologists, like if Aaron was if we give Aaron back on the show, um, he would have things to say about that for sure. But we don't see this anymore. But no, let's let's backtrack a little bit. Let's talk about dating again. So, because that's really what we're talking about. Yeah. So back into dating. Yeah. So if we look back at the in, uh, second industrial revolution, uh, towards the latter end of that, like we're we're in the very very early twentieth century here. We're we're coming up to World War II, Roaring Twenties type of thing, and and we hadn't really touched on this yet. But you know, a lot of these things when we talk about courtship and calling cards and uh these real like jane austen we tried watching emma yeah that was we really hard to get into <laughs> um or like downton abbey type stuff no, like, i love me some downton abbey like that's real real high class like high tier high stuff. society yeah, yeah. Like, we're talking like the one percenters how are they living like with everyone else a lot of these practices were kind of still in play where where we had uh, you could call it arranged marriages, but it wasn't to unite kingdoms. It was so two farms that were next to each other might be able to create one bigger farm yeah. and everything. Yeah. And um, but lower income f folks also had uh, just more freedoms to be able to pick their partners out of love and attraction than their uh than their richer counterparts there there was less expectation that they would have to marry into class or anything like that or you know just all these politics just it, it wasn't involved in that way so as we move into the early early 20th century and we start uh forming more of i i guess we could call it a true like middle class starts forming like where you don't have, you know, we're, we're out of, we're out of the, the feudal systems where you have the lords and the, the workers and everything like that. And we're starting to get a little more of that gray area. These are people who, like you were saying earlier, now have money for the first time. And they don't not only have money, but they have options for the first time. Cause even watching something like Emma or Downton Abbey or anything like that, like, if a 23-year-old moves into town, <laughs> everybody of the opposite sex is going nuts. Like, it is it's slaughter day. People right? notice. <laughs> yeah, people notice. <laughs> now suddenly you are an eligible bachelor bachelorette and you are surrounded by all these new eligible bachelors and bachelorettes like yes. you have all this choice it's a meat market and now you have all this money and also and now the difference between rich and poor is starting to muddy a little bit towards the center 
And um, we enter a period that I saw referenced to as enlightened courtship. So what is enlightened courtship? It's just dating. That was just like the name for dating? Yeah, because... Like who came up with that name? I don't know, some French dude or something. Some French dude. <laughs> Lafayette. Oui, oui. Oui, oui, mon ami. Oh, you're going to see Hamilton tomorrow, I am you? going to see Hamilton For tomorrow. For the second time. I know. I'm so excited. And we're not talking Disney Plus. No. We're, we're going we're to the talking, show. We're talking the Anne, Petty, Anne Peggy cast. The Anne Peggy cast. Broadway traveling troupe. Yes. The uh, Philip, I think, is the name of this troupe. I thought this was the Ann Peggy's. No, this is the Philip. Oh, my bad. So the Philip company. Um, but yeah, we're going. I the only reason we're going to see twice is not because we are hoity twitty richies. Uh I won um a, a a lottery called Ham for Ham. So if you're a Hamilton fan and Hamilton is ever touring near you, you need to know this exists. It's called Ham for Ham. It's a you go to the Hamilton app, download the Hamilton app from your app store. And then you enter the lottery for all the showings near you. And Ham for Ham is Hamilton for a Hamilton. So you get a $10 tickets. And Good you can, tickets. Yeah. Well, it's it, so what it is is they put you wherever didn't sell. And so it's usually the really expensive tickets. So like this girl that I was talking to online, she ended up like front and center, like three rows back from the front, very center. We had orchestra seats like seven rows back from the front or nine. Like that. So we were like, it was like insane. I like the seats we got for $10. But this show that we're going to tomorrow was before I knew that I was going to win a lottery. And uh, so we bought our youngest child is also Hamilton obsessed Hamilton focused. Hamilton focused. <laughs> and um, so we bought them tickets a while back. And so these are nosebleeds, but we're going to be in the room where it happens. And so that's what matters. Oh, I don't have a clap soundboard. For my. <laughs> I might, but so, I don't want a sad trombone on so, accident. Okay, so enlightened courtship. And so, 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 okay, because we're talking about enlightenment. We're talking about higher thinking now. Uh, <laughs> we're talking about like. Um, so you're like the, the democratization of dating. Right. And, um, and so now, now we're getting to the point where, uh, where people are pursuing each other without marriage already hanging over their heads. So dating means something different if you don't have to marry everybody you date. No, dating is new. Like there, that's the, true. The, there the, was no the, dating was before no, this. Yeah. yeah. So meeting new people means something different. If you're not meeting people with um, marriage as the first goal. Yeah. I mean, even if we bring it back like a couple decades, like uh, still in this era that we're talking about, uh, if we if we go back, so on HBO there's a show called Deadwood. <laughs> oh people are gonna stop listening <laughs> welcome to the deadwood podcast <laughs> it's really not <laughs> we just really like the show we haven't even finished it yet maybe we don't like it <laughs> but that but that had like in all honesty like the the second industrial revolution is my favorite period of history it is in every single aspect when it, it was the weirdest transition period between the way things had always been and the way things are now like at the end of this era like at the end of world war one 
is when we start seeing the spikes in population and technology. Yeah. But like industrial revolution, the just in that period, the population of Europe quadrupled. Like, like it's just nuts how much people were fucking. But <laughs> but in every single aspect, technologically, in warfare, World War One is my favorite war to study just because you have it starts out Napoleonic and ends like pretty much looking like World War II, which is so modern uh, by any standard. But even in relationships, because you look at something like Deadwood and uh, Timothy Oliphant. You know Timothy Oliphant. He can't even bottom himself. He tops so hard. <laughs> I forget what we said. Something like but, that. Yeah, it was that exactly works. that. Meow. Yeah. <laughs> and, um, but Timothy Oliphant, what is it? His brother dies. And so his brother's wife is now his wife. Yeah, he marries his brother's like, wife that is and raises so, his brother's child. That is so old school thinking. Yeah. Right? But at the same time. That's biblical. Yeah. But at the same time, they're starting to bring in these new ideas because when um, when she first moves to Deadwood, they're talking about things like, uh, was it bundling boards? Yeah. Yeah, which was a very new thing because that is – how can two people who are not married share a bed and have it still kind of be okay? Like, and it's the most ridiculous idea of let's just put a board up between us, but still share a bed and everything. Like it's like today, it just seems so weird. Well, no, it's not. It doesn't seem weird because think about like, I love Lucy. They were a married couple on TV who their beds were apart. Remember that was like the big deal with I love Lucy was they were the, that was the first time on TV that a married couple shared, shared a bed. So we, these are holdover. Like these ideas held over for a long time that are, are stigmas around sex and around what people do in their bedrooms. So I don't know if that's like the best example. Well, well no, no. What I'm, what I'm trying to say is uh, it's, it's those times between rules when everything is full of loopholes. Yes. And so you had the uh, that rules is a of, yeah, you had the rules of married people can't sleep together. And we're transitioning to uh, these days where lots of unmarried people are sleeping together. And <laughs> I don't know anybody. Who and in that, that weird Guess. in between, we're like, let's sleep together and put a board between us. Yes, it is you know? a loophole. And, and so like, like we're, we're in that weird gray transitionary area, which is, which is just a really cool thing to look back on. That is a cool thing to look back on. See, my favorite thing about all of this is looking at what it gave us. Like I'm really fascinated with the impact that consumerism and capitalism had on dating Mm -hmm. And that wouldn't have been possible without, well, one, the Industrial Revolution inventing dating in the first place because it pooled all these people together and people do what they do. But it, beyond that, this idea of everybody having money and having time and having things, and now you've got things like advertising. Like there wasn't a reason, you didn't need advertising before all of this. And we're advertising to anybody who can spend money on anything. Well, one of the things people are spending their money on is taking each other out. And so you see advertisers start telling people, start telling women how to be more attractive to men, start telling men how to be like a better man, a better husband, nice places to take your woman on a date, those kinds of things. Like the whole convention of dating is becoming shaped very early on by consumerism, by capitalism, by advertising, by people telling you how to spend your money in every aspect of your life, dating included, dating and marriage included. And so these conventions, what we know about 
today, uh, the whole industry of wedding, the whole of weddings, the whole industry of dating, all of that is like invented by advertisers. And so it, I have always thought like, I think some people feel like that cheapens it. Like, oh, that Valentine's Day is a Hallmark holiday, that it was created to sell greeting cards, basically. Um, but I don't know if I, I don't, I don't know how, how you feel about that. I don't know if I think that's true. I, I still like that stuff. I still like the idea of wearing a wedding ring. I don't wear a diamond ring, but, um, you know, maybe not the idea of the wedding ring being uh, necessarily capitalistic, but the idea of a diamond Diamonds were specifically never necessarily like a wedding thing and they became a wedding thing because of advertising, because of consumerism. And so all of these things that tell us how to be with each other, how to be romantic, how to be attractive, it's all made up by advertisers. And advertisers who realize that people are having sex and that getting people to think about sex will sell their product. And I just find it is that industrial revolution era stuff? Not necessarily, but did that become what it was because of the way that the industrial revolution shaped the world? Absolutely. And I just think that's fantastic. And so then we have to tease apart for ourselves, what is sincere? What are the, what are the gestures we make that are sincere? What are the feelings we have that are ours and what is shaped for us by the social scripts happening around us and who is writing those social scripts? And I think that's something we don't do enough. I think we don't spend enough time investigating those social scripts that we adhere to and deciding if they really fit for us. Like, why are we doing this? Yeah, and like when you're saying like you don't know how I think about Valentine's or anything like that, like I'm never one to push back against or push back against a social construct simply because it is a construct. I mean, any, any type of tradition that we have is going to be a construct, you know, um, it doesn't make something less true because it's derivative of something. If it's not Don Draper telling me that I need to do something a certain way before you can tell me, to do anything any certain way that he wants. Dom Draper. Dom Draper, yes. <laughs> Bef before them, it was the church, you yeah. know, telling me what the way I needed to be was. And the way people lived with each other and loved each other and made their lives wasn't any less real because the church was telling them to do so. And But I guess it depends on your belief in the church. And so I think maybe the difference there is, yes, the church was telling everybody, this still, tries, still tries to, but if you are in deep belief, then the institution that's governing the social scripts by which you live, that's perfectly acceptable to you. That's in alignment and in integrity with your values. But now we worship at the altar of consumerism. And so that is now the church that is telling us and in some cases, the overlap in that Venn diagram is practically a circle. <laughs> but that is the church now that's telling us how to live. And those are the social scripts I wonder. And again, I'm also not one to flout a construct just because it's a construct. Like, I, I like some things that I know only exist because of consumerism. Um, what is there? There's no ethical consumption under capitalism. Like, I, I still like some stuff that, that comes from this. 
but and, and including some of the constructs of dating. Like I like some of the conventions that I know only exist because of capitalism. But do we, is it important to know that that's where it comes from? Does that even matter? I don't think so. Because hmm, if you don't, let, let's take something like Valentine's Day. Before you learn that it was created by ad companies to sell flowers and cards and chocolate, you loved it because, because it was Valentine's Day. Right, is the time that you got to uh, uh, tell your honey that that you love them uh, in a special way, guaranteed one time <laughs> a year, right? Um, <laughs> but once you learn that, I mean, I'm sure everybody goes through like a pushback. Not everybody, but I'm sure a lot of people go through like a pushback phase where there's like a sense of betrayal from what they thought was just the way things was. And, you know, it's part of that growing up and experience and living when, where you realize that nothing just is, everything is because, you know, um, that everything, that everything in society is a construct. And the reason why I don't think it matters is because I think for it to, I don't think that anybody would love valentine's day from a romantic aspect because it is a corporate holiday no right i think that a lot of people have when they still love it love it despite it yeah. and, and so so i don't think it matters but is it i guess i think it matters I, I guess i disagree with you only a little bit i don't i think it matters in that depending on where your values are and depending on what you find important to buy, what institutions you find important to buy into, I think knowing the source of the things you, the, the behaviors you do, knowing the source of the social scripts, even if you continue to use them, I think gives you a lot of information about yourself and about your behavior. So, um, like, what am I supporting? What am I endorsing? Right. Um, if I, maybe it's not in alignment for me to be really buying into something that's, that has very little history outside of being invented by advertising men. And so maybe, maybe that's just not in alignment with my values. And so maybe learning that is important to me. Maybe I decide I'm going to celebrate my love for my partner in a different way on a different day. Maybe I'm not going to do it by buying something. Maybe I'm going to do it by some sort of gesture. Maybe I'm not going to spend any money on that day. So maybe it just, and it doesn't change what the day means to you. And it doesn't change doing a nice thing for your, your honey. And that the day is a, a wonderful reminder to express love and affection to somebody that sometimes when you get into a long-term relationship, we can forget to kind of say the I love yous and those kinds of things. And so maybe there's good things to come out of the day. But because of your personal values, you want to choose to celebrate in a specifically different way. And I think that comes up with, when we look outside of dating, comes up with in other places, like other holidays, like we see that at Christmas and we see that at Easter. We see that, you know, so 
and I'm just choosing holidays because that's like the ready example, but I think about with dating and with marriage, a lot of these conventions are what they are because someone was trying to sell someone something. And it's just very, I just find that to be fascinating. And I wonder if we know the sources of these social scripts, does that give us the information we need to rewrite them? Or some of the information we need? Like, does it unpacking that history? And maybe it doesn't matter. And maybe, maybe at a social level, it's hard to change, but you kind of can't do anything about, I mean, talk to anybody who's dating, they'll tell you dating sucks, mm -hmm. right? Like the system's not a great system. <laughs> it's a lot of, I mean, you event, you have some good dates, not, not the entirety of dating sucks, but more of it sucks than doesn't. So I have to imagine that there's some way of doing it that's less sucky, but I don't know what that is and I don't have a suggestion for what that would look like. But I wonder collectively if we all sort of unpacked where this came from and said, okay, let's rewrite this a little bit and let's remove some of the influence of things that don't belong here, what would that look like? And again, I'm just imagining this sort of utopia where we get to sort of rewrite cultural norms based on our own values instead of based on the values of like the Don Drapers of the world. But mm -hmm. you know, that's, that's what I find fascinating about this period of time. That's why I wanted to talk about it because I just think it's amazing to think about how much our lives are shaped by something uh, by people sitting in rooms that we'll never be in. Yeah, and, and the way that those questions that you bring up mature over time to where we are today uh, is, is also just really interesting because when you start taking a magnifying glass to things like Valentine's Day and how do you celebrate it? Do you celebrate it? What do you feel about it? Because you know the roots of it. It's a it's an interesting um, rabbit hole to go down uh, because of where else you can point that magnifying glass, and I can't help but thinking that trying to maintain independence from these things would turn you into Doug Forsett. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, because when you explain to the to the to the class, if you've never seen The Good Place, um, <laughs> Doug Forsett is. Uh, a guy who tries to do everything right and good. And he has kind of inadvertently cracked the code of the universe on how to be a good person. And how to earn good person points. Yeah, how to earn good person points to get into the good place. And minor, I'm not going to like spoil anything big. Um, but it like is a minor spoiler, so if you haven't watched it... Yeah, okay, so so a, a little bit more of a philosophical spoiler for the show uh, coming up. If you don't want to hear it, just skip ahead two minutes. Um, but one of the big things that the show tackles is how our lives have become so entwined with the lives of others that we will never, ever meet or know exist, and how our actions affect those probably negatively when we buy anything. I mean, Chiquita had paramilitary troops in Central America and plastics are doing horrible things everywhere. And like, is it possible to make an objectively good decision anymore? You know? And Doug like opts out of all that. He does. 
and I hope you haven't tuned back in in yet because I'm only still 30 seconds into this, but he he didn't get in to the good place because it was all messed up. Yeah, nobody um, did. (laughs) Yeah, nobody was getting in because of how messed up the world was. There was everything was so intertwined that it was impossible to do pure good. And I'm gonna take this. I'm gonna say, be careful of good place spoilers starting now. No more good place spoilers. It's an interesting idea of of where you think about where the stuff in your life comes from, whether it be physical things or cultural things or holidays or anything like that, and where you choose to push back and where you choose to not and how you choose to or, or not. And what are the battles you're willing to fight and where are the places where you just want to relax, you know, like targeted advertisements. I don't turn that off on a lot of my stuff because it doesn't mean you're not going to get ads. It just means you're, if you turn it off, you're just going to get garbage ads. ads. You're going to get ads that don't pertain to you. Oh, I love targeted ads. Yeah. I mean, if you're going to advertise to me, at least show me stuff I like, you know, I actually probably should turn targeted ads off for a little while. <laughs> but I mean, and these targeted ads are within places like Facebook and we're learning how unethical that space yeah, is. Just how horrible everything is. And like Amazon and everything. And, you know, we buy at Amazon instead of other stores solely because of speed. Who? And and they're just like, like I just bought you that keyboard. Yeah, I love if it was on Amazon, I would have bought it there. But I had to buy it straight from Logitech, and it took like what a week and a half to get here, and that was super annoying. <laughs> yeah, Amazon's monstrous. Remember when we told the youngest child about how monstrous Amazon was, and they wanted to go through the house and like throw away everything we got from Amazon? Oh, the child whose favorite thing in the world was their Kindle. Was their Kindle, and we had to explain like that's when we taught the child there's no ethical consumption or capital capitalism, and that we had to explain that we make choices and that we do our best and that um, you just can't, it's not reasonable to, you can't opt out of the system. And so kind of going back to this topic, God, because who knew that a topic founded on capitalism would get so dark? <laughs> but, oh, we're talking about dating, dating. Aren't we? But going mm. back to this topic of dating and, and the question that I had asked was, is it important to understand the roots of these things? And your argument was no, my argument was yes, and we both made pretty good points for why. I think at the end of the day, it's whether or not it's important. I think people, um, I'm a big fan of giving people all the information and then letting them decide what systems to opt in and out of. And so maybe you have all the information and then you keep doing the thing. And maybe you have all the information and you decide to do the thing differently or you become differently attached to the thing. Like I know that the way that we dated and the way we got married had a lot to do with us opting out of a lot of these systems and very intentionally opting out of a lot of these systems because we had bought into these systems in the past (laughs) and because we knew it didn't work for us and we knew it wasn't really in alignment with us. And so we did have that information. We were able to opt out of the things that we wanted, but I mean, there were still things we eloped in a park with 10 people and there were still traditional things about what we did. 
And you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Like we still said vows and I still walked down like a sort of aisle and surprised you and you didn't see me, you know, you're smiling. That's cute. And, um, for those of you who can't see, he's kind of blushing a little bit. It's very adorable. (laughs) It was a really nice day. It was really nice. Um, but yeah, so we, even in our like weird little pop-up goth wedding, I wore a black wedding dress, the whole deal. Um, I'm not, and I'm not saying that to judge people who go all out. I've been married before and I went, all out on the Same. first one. And uh, so I've done it both ways. And I I think that what was in alignment for Steve and I when we did this um, came from the, the information we had about doing it differently the first time. And I think that information is what's important. So that's why we do these episodes. That's why we do stuff like this. Yeah. I, I mean, like like with with that, you know, it was we had the information of what mattered to us. And I think when we start talking about things like industry and holiday and everything like that, like I would love for everybody to have all the information, but I think it's just too much information. Oh, nobody's going to have all the information about everything. No, no one would be able to handle it. Your brain would explode. Yeah. And nobody knows it either. I mean, the entire idea of Western society is like just such a delicate balance. It was a pain in the butt researching this podcast episode. Yeah. Like honestly, even finding like, stuff for this depending on the parts of things we were researching there wasn't even a ton of information so what's deemed worth passing down is interesting um but yeah Yeah, that's probably why why the the narrative of the podcast seemed to jump around a lot (laughs) We we were piecing stuff together yeah well because that's it's the history of dating was a little piece together because it didn't exist and we kind of look back on old practices pre-dating and we say, well, that was something dating adjacent. And so we sort of attach a label to it, but that wasn't what it was. And then the industrial revolution hits and all of a sudden dating exists. And now we have this concept. And so we're retroactively applying that, you know, um, anyway, but yeah, I think, I don't know. Do you think so? Have have we done the topic justice? I think so. I mean, like, yeah, yeah. I I mean, cause the entire idea of the episode was a little self, uh, sub what's the, the version of sub subversion, self, self subversion, self subverting. Yes. That word. Um, because talking about say it self, sub the entire idea of the episode was a little self subverting, subverting, uh, because we're talking about dating in the industrial revolution, but the entire conceit is that dating didn't even exist until the industrial revolution. And, and I, I think we, we really touched on, you know, what came before and what came after. Yeah. And so do with that information what you will, but it is at least interesting to know. And if you ever want to go down those rabbit holes, you can kind of Google around on it. Um, but yeah, enjoy yourself a sangria. And honestly, it's a freaking good drink. It's a weirdly good drink. It's what did you say? It's like the kind of drink, that a bartender who knew you really well would make for you, you've never heard it before, and then they're making it for you because they think you'll like this. Because it's not something I would ever order. But it turns out. Based well, off of what's on it and what's in it and what I think I like, like Madeira and Brandy, is, is are those neither of those things aren't anything that I ever order. You would like this. Uh, he can't say whether or not he likes it cause he still hasn't gotten his taste back, but his sense of taste back from having COVID a while back. 
Um, but yes, uh, I think I think you would like this very much. So go ahead. If you're listening, make yourself sangry. Enjoy. We're going to say cheers and good night. Nope. No? Because I have to talk to you about our culturally relevant topic. How are the 2001 film, The Fast and the Furious, starring Paul Walker and Vin Diesel, and Whippets related? They both have nitrous? Nitrous, yeah. So nitrous oxide has always been a party drug. And when I say always been a party drug, that's what it's always been. And it was like one of these things where people would go on stage and just do whippets so the audience could see what they acted like when high as a kite. Like that was the show. Are you doing whippets right now? No. What does that have to do with dating? Nothing. Why are... So at one of these shows, <laughs> this guy is high as a kite. <laughs> I'm on, on pins and needles over here. <laughs> and he wax his shins up against a like long wooden bench he doesn't feel a thing mm. who's in the audience a dentist a dentist who's like holy shit that guy really hurt himself and didn't feel anything and so Laughing. he decided to start giving it as a general anesthesia to his patients and it worked. Yeah. Like, they didn't feel it when their teeth got pulled. Okay. He ended up going on to do, like, chloroform. And, like, he did really horrible things when he was on it and ended up killing himself because of those horrible things oh. that he did while he was on drugs. But that's the interesting backstory to how we have general anesthesia now. Okay. Next week. <laughs> there it is. For our spooky episode. Spooky. We're going to talk about the history of chainsaws. Chainsaws. <laughs> and how they have to do with babies. I think that's too much information already. No. Nope. <laughs> Give baby chainsaws. Give a baby a chainsaw. You hear that California is going to ban gas chainsaws and lawnmowers? I didn't hear that. Oh, God. How are they going to chop down trees to stop fires? <laughs> My battery runs out after like 20 minutes. Well, I'm sure with a special permit. <laughs> so thank you, Paul Walker, for chainsaws. And on that note, yes. I'm going to say cheers and good night. Good night, everybody.